The scripture reading today is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 12, verses 49 to 53, and 13, verses 1 through 9. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those eighteen on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he sent to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. So like I usually do, let me give you a couple of uh, my sources for the sermon today. One is... uh, a guy named Jonathan St. Clair out in Berkeley, California. I got one, uh, one point for the, the sermon from uh, a guy named Tim Keller. And then a, a lot of the material from a book by Eugene Peterson. You know, our mental images of Jesus often, often need to be challenged. One of the most famous paintings of Jesus Christ was done in 1940 by a guy named, a guy named Warner Salmon. And it's called Head of Christ. You've probably seen it and not even realized you've seen it. Uh, it sold uh, 100,000 copies in two months. And in the next year, it sold 3 million. And one of the, um, one, one writer, a, a couple years after this, commented on the, the, the way that Jesus was portrayed in art in the first half of the 20th century and said this. It's like all the artists got together and made a decision together that they were going to have Jesus portrayed as a woman with a beard. Jesus portrayed as a woman with a beard. You know, our, these mental images of Jesus' profile are nothing compared, are absolutely nothing compared with the images that we have of Jesus' character, of what he's really like. And, you know, um, it's... Jesus' character has been redrawn so often so that, like, you, it's very common to have this Old Testament view of, Old Testament view, God of vengeance, Old Testament, 
New Testament, God of grace and love and puppies and kittens and bunnies and little lambs. Right? That's sort of how people think of the Bible. And, you know, as the Bible dom- uh, commentator Daryl Box said of, of this kind of portrayal of Jesus, he says, you know, if you look at the modern definition of Jesus as he's presented in many pulpits and he's, as he's presented in our secular conscience, you know, that you would find that, honestly, that kind of Jesus would never have drawn the type of fire that we see him drawing in the New Testament and never have been crucified. And so you come to a passage like this, and you, all the notions of gentle Jesus, Jesus gentle and mild, you know, they've got to fall away. You hear Jesus saying things here like, I can't wait to bring fire on the earth. I can't wait. I am anxious for a baptism of destruction to happen here. And you know, this, this is hard stuff. I've been sort of kicking myself for choosing this passage all week. Because this is hard for me to read. It's hard for us to hear. It's hard to preach about. And it's not the Jesus we prefer. Let's look at this passage together. What is happening in here? Jesus is teaching to a crowd of people. And one man in the crowd kind of offers up to Jesus what, you know, is a current event story. Jesus, have you heard about this atrocity? And he tells him, he reminds him, and Jesus has heard of this, about Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor. And Pilate had, had gone into the temple when some Jewish worshipers were right at the high point, the most, the most sacred part of their worship. And they're right at the point of sacrificing, and Pilate has his soldiers come in and kill them at that moment. It's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine a more appalling, a more um, upsetting atrocity story. You know, and so somebody says, look, you know, what could be worse than this? And the question behind the story, which is what comes up every time we hear these kind of atrocity stories in our day, is, of course, this question. Why? Where was God when this happened? Where was God when this happened? And Jesus' response to his question reads kind of like, uh, it, it seems kind of flat in, your, in the translation of Scripture. It seems kind of like, no... And Jesus goes on to say something else. But, I t- but in, the, in the original language of this, it's very emphatic. Jesus is like saying, no, I tell you no. Very emphatically, you got it all wrong. Your view of this is way off. And so Jesus goes on to up the ante, right? He goes on to up the ante and he says, well, what about this story? And he says, there was, you've heard this one. There were 18 guys. And a tower in Siloam, which is a place in Jerusalem, falls on them, collapses on them, and kills them all. You know, and Jesus brings up this story, which we would call, if you're an insurance adjuster, you call this an act of God story, right? We call this an act of God story because it's the same kind of stories that come up when the tsunami hit the Pacific Rim a few years ago. You know, when Hurricane Katrina hits uh, Louisiana, and people are like, Why? Where is God? What is going on? And it's interesting, Jesus doesn't, he seems to take offense at this, but he doesn't take offense with their assumption that God is in charge. He never says, why are you blaming God for things that happen? Why are you blaming God for natural disasters? God's not really in control. He doesn't say any of that stuff. Instead, he takes, he takes point, he takes um, a, a, 
on their supposition of this. Was God giving them what they deserved? Was God giving those Galileans what they deserved when they were in the temple and they were slaughtered in the middle of their sacrifice? Was God giving those 18 men who were crushed by the tower what they deserved? That's the issue that Jesus is taking on this passage. And, you know, it's not the only time you see this in the Bible. If you've read much of the Old Testament, there's a book of Job. And it's a, there's a book called Job, and it's about a man named Job who suffered greatly. And he's surrounded then very quickly by three of his friends who come to kind of offer him a pat on the back, give him a little hug, give a couple of words of encouragement to Job. And one of his friends says, Job, you must have done something wrong. This is Job chapter 4. You know, it's, it's a pretty standard interpretation. Bad things happen to you. You must have done something to deserve this. You know, the same thing happens. Jesus is with his followers. And in John chapter 9, they're walking down the road. And as they're walking down the road, they see a blind man. And one of the disciples says, hey, what's the story on that one, Jesus? What's his background? What happened to him? Surely he must have sinned or his parents must have sinned. Right? And Jesus says, no, I tell you no. You're not just a little off. You're way off. You know, this is not just an ancient idea, is it? I was really glad there were no major um, disasters this week. I, I like to talk about this in the midst of it being actually kind of a normal week for us. But this is a thoroughly modern idea. What happened after 9-11? You know, 9-11, the story of towers falling, is kind of eerily similar to this passage, isn't it? But what happens after 9-11? People start interpreting. There were many pastors across the nation who said, Surely, this is because this is a judgment of God on greed. Right? Or, you know, in Haiti, with the hurricane hit last year, people there were common interpretations. You know, this is a judgment of God on voodoo religion. But see... Well, we may dismiss those and say, we don't think that way. Those are for crazy preachers. Those are crazy people. I would tell you that we do this all the time on a personal level. See, what happens when you have a bad day, when you can't get a parking spot, when you, 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 know, you lose all your files on your computer, right? What happens when your life just is not working on a particular day? What do you say? What's your interpretation? You curse. Okay, okay maybe you were nice people. You look like nice people. You don't curse, you curse under your breath, you know. But what is a curse? A curse is a prayer. It's like, you know, damn this. It's an interpretation of the events. See, we do this all the time. We interpret our reality and say, bad things that happened to me must have come from something I've done. And it works the other way, too. It's actually not just a negative thing. It actually works positively. Let me give you an example. My family, we love the movie Sound of Music. And this is partly because we have lots of kids. And I fashioned myself as Captain Von Trapp. And I'm married to Maria. Okay, So, so I'm like disciplined in my household. Susan's like singing and dancing, right? So, um, But in the movie, okay, some of you are groaning. I know you, some of you hate this movie. I love this movie. But, um, so what happens? When Captain Von Trapp and Maria finally confess, confess their undying love for one another, do you remember what happens? They sing a duet, as you're supposed to. And 
It's a very curious song. Here's some of the words to the song. So here's what Captain Von Trapp sings. He says, so here you are standing here loving me, whether or not you should. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, some of you know this, I must have done something good. You guys do know this, right? So, right, I mean, so what's his interpretation? I must have done something good. I must have deserved this somewhere in my past. Look, this is the default way people look at God. Bad things happen in your life. Must have been something bad you did. Good things happen. You must have deserved that. You must have done something good. Think about that. Think about what's behind that. Let's let's give that just give that that monologue a couple of questions, will we? Now, first is the personal test. Here's the personal test. When do you assume that something bad has happened to someone else? Right? You assume something bad has happened to someone else because you're having a good day. Right? You look at someone else and you say, something bad must have happened because they did something bad. You don't ask that question of yourself. You don't want to ask that question of yourself. We ask this question when bad things are happening to other people and we're doing okay. See, People who are suffering don't want to ask this question. This is a painful question. That should give you a hint there's something wrong with it. The second, the second test of that assumption is this. Who is telling this, this parable in this story? Who is talking in Luke 13? Right? It's the one person on earth who actually lived a really good life. Who actually did all the right things. Was a really nice guy. And how was his life go? How did that go for him? Did God give him what he deserved? No. Jesus suffered greatly beyond our ability really to be able to understand. You know, and, and we, we look at this and you've you got to say, something is wrong with this view of the world. So, so let's listen again. What does Jesus say to the crowd? He says, no, I tell you no. Your view of God is not just a little bit off. Your view of yourself, your view of God, your view of the world is way off. You are way wrong. Not just a little bit. See, you have to extrapolate this out and say, is God giving me, is God giving you what you deserve? Is he? You know, um, the late Francis Schaeffer gave this illustration. Imagine that every person in this room has a very small audio recorder, digital audio recorder, hanging from your neck. And it records everything that you say in your entire life. I mean, it takes down everything. Every comment, you're driving in the car, you're talking out loud, things you say to your mom on the phone, everything. And at the end of your life, this recording is edited and played back for you. Now... Here's what Schaefer said. Think about your own standard that is measured in your language. You're, you're, the things that you say about other people. She shouldn't have said that to him. He was so inconsiderate. How could she say that? Think about all the why questions we ask. Why did, why did he do that? I can't believe that person would be like that. All of our standards come out in our speech, right? Or think about, think about some of the lofty expectations that you have of your parents, your friends, your spouse. 
things that you say, look, this is the way you should be. This is the way you ought to be. And it comes out in, in various ways in your speech all the time. Now imagine that you are going to be judged according to your own standards. Someone says, you know, you, you play back the recording and you're saying, you ought to follow through on commitments. You ought to treat people with kindness. I expect people to be even with me. You know, I don't know if you're like me, but I would fail that a hundred times, a thousand times over. Because according to my own standards, I do this all the time. I, I say, well, you know, you got to understand, I was having a bad day. If I'm irritable, if I'm angry, if I'm defensive, I always have a qualifier, don't you? Like, I'm kind of like, no, you, you don't understand. Like, I have an excuse. There's a good reason why I was like this this particular day. And Schaefer says, look, according to your own standards, you make up excuses, you fall short of your standard all the time. How much more the standard of a holy and righteous God? You know, if God is the definition in his character, of, if he is perfection itself, if he is the definition of virtue, if God is the measure, I mean, our standards are not just a little short. We can't even begin to imagine how far short we fall. And then listen. Listen to what Jesus says about this. Matthew chapter 5, he says, Here's the standard. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So the question, is God giving us what we deserve? Is God giving us what we deserve? The truth is, Measured according to God's standard, you deserve, I deserve to have a tower fall on me. On you. That's what we deserve. And so the real, you want the real metaphysical, you want the real philosophical question of the world is not, why is there so much suffering? It's, why is there so little? Why is there so little? If God gives what doles out according to his standard of justice, we're all in trouble. We're all condemned, not just according to our own standard, but his. And so Jesus tells a parable to challenge some of these assumptions. He challenges some of the like, God gives what people deserve assumptions. I have a good day. I must have done, I'm, I'm having a good life. I must have done something good. I'm having a bad life. I must have done something bad. Jesus gives a parable to challenge this. We've been talking about the parables all this semester. And we've been talking about it. And, you know, if you remember what a parable is, it's a story that acts. It's a small, kind of insignificant story. It's about things that seem unspiritual, right? You know, here we're, we're reading about a fig tree and manure, for crying out loud. And yet it's like a splinter. Have you ever gotten one of those, like, little bitty splinters that's almost, like, impossible to see? It, it gets under your skin. It irritates. And you, you, you have to stop. And it irritates so much that it disrupts your life enough that you're like, I've got to stop. I've got to find a pair of tweezers right now. I've got to get this thing out. And it may be like almost invisible to you. But pulling it out brings great relief. That's what a parable is like. A parable is meant to get under your skin. It's meant to kind of bother you. But it's meant to bring clarity. It's meant to bring relief. And that's why Jesus tells this parable so let's look at what this parable, how this, how this parable works. It irritates to bring relief. And see, without the parable, I, I looked at, like, as I always do, I'm like, how have other pastors preached this passage? And I looked at a number of other pastors 
preaching on this, and I realize they stop at verse 5. And if you do that, and you just read, like, Tower Falls, repent, you know, and Pilate kills all these people, repent, it sounds kind of rough. It's like this picture that we have of God without the parable sounds capricious. It sounds like Clash of the Titans, you know? What, what, is, what does Zeus say in Clash of the Titans? He's like, these humans need to be reminded of the order of things. Let's put them in their place. Hades says, you know, you people are specks of dirt under our fingernails. And that's what God sounds like to many of us. Except for the parable. But Jesus says, no. I tell you no. That is not what God is like. And he tells us with this parable. So review the parable with me. There's a certain owner of some land who decides to plant a fig tree in the middle of his vineyard. And after three years, the fig tree doesn't produce anything. And so he tells the gardener, he tells the vine dresser, the guy who works for him, he says, just cut it down. And the vine dresser says, no, let's give it another year, put some manure around it, and then if it doesn't produce anything, we'll cut it down. You know, it would be easy, hearing this story, to just assign these two people to the characters God and Jesus Christ, right? God. God of wrath, Old Testament vengeance, cut it down. Jesus, happy. No, give him another year. But see, we you're too smart for that. We read the first part of this passage. Jesus has just said, I can't wait to bring fire on the earth. This isn't, you know, your effeminate Sunday school flannel board Jesus. This is Jesus saying, I come to bring judgment. Do you see, this parable, this passage, doesn't let us get away with two-dimensional pictures of who God is. It shows us a complex nature of who God is. Look look what it says here. I can't be simplistic. See, we see two aspects of God's character which seem to be in tension over and over again. You see God and Jesus saying, Justice. There is a place that for justice in this world. And look, if you are a person who's not from a culture of privilege, if you're a person who's seen the injustice of this world, if you've seen ways that people in power reinterpret their rules in order to make right and good what they define it, then see, justice is actually not something that, that you're afraid of. You want it. And when we... If, if you if you can have any experience of injustice in this world, then you know that the justice of God is not something that's just threatening. It's actually something that is treasured. God who wants to make all things right, that's a good thing. God who promises that things will be evened out, that what is wrong in this life will be made right, don't you hunger for that? See, that's an essential part of God's character. And yet you see it in this passage in tension, right? You see it in tension with the other aspect of God's character, patience, love. Let's give it another year. Let's let's hold off. Let's see what happens. Do you see how those two things are working, uh, are in tension? You know, God, we find out, is not in a hurry See, he is patient, writes Peter in his epistle, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to a knowledge of him. 
God is, you see, we see in this story, cut it down, no wait a little bit. This kind of weird patience of God. God is patient with this fig tree beyond what we would be. Many of us have this kind of cut it down, sure, like immediacy. And here's God who's patient. How long? We don't know. Will everyone respond? No. But here's God who's patient over and over. How is it that God is both can be both just and patient? How can he exercise this kind of like, cut it down and hold off? Hold off. You know, it's not a tension between God the Father, cut it down, wrath, and Jesus Christ the Son. Patience. It's a tension that's inherent in the very person of Jesus as you see him praying in the garden the night before he's about to be executed. Right? He's in the garden and he's weeping. His sweat ran like blood, it says. And he's sweating it out because he says, God, I know there's a cup of wrath. I know that you are right in bringing justice. And that, that's going to fall on me. I don't want it. Yet not what I will, but you will. See, how is it? How is it that God is so patient? How does God hold back? There's another Galilean. Right? We read this, the story about the Galileans who went in the temple and were killed there as they were making a sacrifice. There's another Galilean, Jesus Christ, who has another run-in with Pontius Pilate. And instead of being killed in the, asp- in, in the very moment of making a sacrifice... Jesus is executed by Pilate as the sacrifice. Instead of his blood being mingled in with the sacrifice, his blood is the sacrifice for us. And Pilate, though he, with Jesus' death, tried to wash his hands of Jesus' blood, we find it's on our own hands. See, why is it that there's such incredible patience with God toward us? Why is it that God is both a God of justice and a God of incredible patience? God gave Jesus what we deserve. See, mercy, the very definition of mercy, the word that we sing over and over every Sunday up here, is not getting what you deserve. That's what mercy is. You don't get what you deserve. A tower should have fallen on us. And yet the wrath, of God, the wrath of God falls on Jesus. Jesus is sacrificed. His blood is shed instead of ours. This is the character of God that, that in telling the story, Jesus is inviting them to. This is what God's like. This is what God is like. See, God is not an unjust God. He is exercising mercy. He is incredibly patient. You know, he's, he says, here, look. Let it alone another year. If it does not bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. What does that mean? What's the fruit that Jesus is looking for? The vine dresser is looking for. The owner is looking for. What are the the fruit that is being looked for in this parable? If you've been reading Luke, as we've been encouraging you to this fall, you know, back a couple chapters before this, in Luke chapter 3, that Luke writes about the fruit, the fruit of repentance. 
Now look, I know that repentance is not a word we use very often. Jesus uses it a couple times in this passage. He says, look, repent. Repent. And repentance, repent, those aren't words that you use very often. Those are not words that come up in your normal discourse with other people. But I tell you that these are essential words when it comes to Scripture. John the Baptist comes and he shows up before Jesus does. And what is his preaching? Repent! Jesus takes his disciples and he sends them out. Mark chapter 6, and he tells them to preach repentance. The beginning of the church, Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up in this crowd and he says, Repentance! Repent! This is essential to what it means to be a Christian. It's one of those words you have to know. If you want to be a follower of God, if you want to be close to God, if you want to experience God's power in your life, this is one of those words that is essential for you. Martin Luther, who is the monk, who kind of lit the the match, you know, that started the powder keg that blew up into the Reformation. He wrote a a tract called the 95 Theses. He nails it to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral in 1517. This is what started the Reformation back in history. I know I'm pushing you guys. But look, what was the first one of those theses? Does anybody know? All of life is repentance. That's, that's That's the match that lit the powder keg. All of life is repentance. I would tell you that some of you who have been Christians the longest, are probably the most dangerous because you think you know what this word means. But you don't really know. This is one of the hardest things to get our heads around. Because we use, sort of, we think about this term in our personal relationships. And we think repentance is the same thing as regret. So, I wish I hadn't done that. But that's not repentance. We think it's the same thing as remorse. We think it's like, Man, I can't believe I did that. I'm so stupid. I can't forgive myself. That's not repentance. We think it's, I will try to do harder. I'm going to work really hard next time. I'm not going to let this happen again. But that's negotiating a settlement. That's lawyer talk. That's not repentance. What we see over and over in Scripture is repentance is clinging to Christ. Saying, I despair of self. I know that I'll do the same thing again if given the chance. I know that that wasn't a hiccup in my character, but who I really am. Repentance is saying, I despair of self. I cling to Jesus. Now, I know some of you are like, look, preacher guy, pastor guy, what do you know about repentance? I'll tell you, this has been one of those things that God has stirred in my life over the last three to four weeks. Seeing my need over and over to cling to him, to despair of self and a self's ability to kind of clean it up next time, to make myself better, to make myself more presentable, to cling to Christ. I'm going to date myself with this this, uh, analogy, but look, Dave Letterman used to have this skit where he put on the Velcro suit. Have you guys seen this before? And he puts on the Velcro suit, he runs, he jumps on the trampoline, and jumps up to the wall that has the other half of the Velcro on it. And he's like, sticks to the wall. It's a great picture of what repentance and faith look like. Stuck to Jesus. You know, not because he's holding on. Stuck, clinging to him. Look, you know, you may be asking, well, what are you calling us to repent of? What does this mean? What are you talking about? You know, 
Jesus is very helpful in this passage in showing us what to repent of. Look, look at both groups of people he's talking to. First, let's look at the first part of the passage. In verses 3 and 5, he's addressing a particular group of people, right? Some folks come up to him and say, Jesus, you know the one about the, the tragedy, the atrocity story? And Jesus is addressing them. He's connecting with them. He's, he's, saying, he's taking them on. He says, look, and, and think about those people who are bringing this issue up to Jesus. The people who bring this up are clearly not those who themselves are going through tragedies. Look, if you're here this morning and you're looking at your life and you're saying, you know, I feel like a tower has fallen on me. My marriage is falling apart. My career is falling apart. Stuff is really not working out in my life. This is probably not a very encouraging passage to you. There's lots of places you can go in the Bible and find words of encouragement and help to say, you know, God is with you in your suffering. But this this surely isn't it because Jesus is not talking to people who are suffering. He's talking to people who are clearly not suffering. He's talking to these people who are saying, Jesus, what about those people over there? Aren't they getting what they deserved? Who's Jesus addressing? Some people who feel superior. Some people whose lives are actually going pretty well and saying, look at those people over there. Aren't they getting what they deserved? You know, here's the problem with our definitions of repentance. Because we think repentance is just dealing with life, dealing with when you mess up, when you screw up, when your life is wrong. We miss the point. You know, so you look at this and you say, repent? Jesus is calling these people to repent? For what? So I would tell you, people, just like these folks in this passage, whose lives are going pretty okay today, that you are in the most dangerous place that you could be in. See, when life is going well for you, when things are kind of working out, you're like, hey, I've had a pretty good week. I'm feeling really good about me and what's happening, and I'm moving forward, and I'm making progress, and things are going well. Watch out. Because something happens when you're in a place where life is working for you. It's subtle. It's imperceptible. Your trust shifts away from the sense of dependence upon God to like your trust shifting to the good things that you have and the good things that you've done. And you begin to feel a little smug and self-righteousness grows up in your heart and you can look at other people and say, man, they must have really screwed up somewhere. Deep down. Nowhere was this as evident to me as when I did youth ministry. I was a youth pastor for seven years and I worked with families who were good families. And good families have problem kids. So, you know, I remember this would happen. There would be this family, and everybody else outside of the family would say, good family. Yeah, they must be doing well. They're raising the kids well. And then Johnny, you know, their, their son, a teenager, begins to kind of blow up. His life begins to fall apart. And something happens to their friends. You know what happens to the friends of those parents? They all begin to say, hmm, I wonder what they did wrong. You know, I, I think it was this. They begin to like, you know, think about, well, maybe maybe this is what happened. Maybe they really weren't, maybe they really listened to their child. Maybe they didn't put them through counseling. Maybe they didn't get them in the right schools. Maybe they weren't with them. What happens? The other parents, are turn. it just turns up the self-righteousness. 
in our hearts. And, you know, what's, what's wild about that is kids are not, teenagers, when I was a youth pastor, they're not like things that you could plug into a formula and they grow up to be nice, well-adjusted people who love Jesus very well and do respectable things. It doesn't work that way. But there was something about that. You know, other parents, you know, let's take Mary's, Mary's parents. They're looking down on Johnny and his family until Mary blows up. See, when good things happen, when your life is working, watch out. Repent. Your trust moves away from the God who you need day in, day out. And you move toward those good things. And you begin to say, I did this. I got this because I'm so wise and moral and good. And I followed the rules and I pulled it together. Repent. Be careful. Jesus says, watch out. But he also speaks to another group of people. He he speaks to another group of people. Jesus speaks to people who are suffering and who are struggling. Now, you need to use your imagination very briefly with this. So you're driving into Lancaster County, and you're greeted by that pungent smell. You, right? you drive toward Barnes, and there's a pungent smell associated with that. Right? Jesus talks about manure in this parable, and it's the first time I've ever had a chance to talk about poop in a sermon, and I'm not going to miss this. Right? It's an odd detail in the story, isn't it? The vine dresser says... Give me one more year with this fig tree and let's put some manure around it. What is manure? Manure is not exciting. Manure is not... This isn't like an immediate fix. It's not efficient. Nobody does PowerPoint presentations to their board of directors about manure. You know, manure is dead stuff. And, you know... According to, as Eugene Peterson puts out, manure is the stuff of resurrection. You know, it's this apparently despised waste is gathered around this tree and it does something. See, some of you are decidedly not in the category this morning of things going well in your life. In fact, you've been taking notes in your bulletin, not on anything I've been saying because you feel kind of disconnected, but on like self-improvement projects. Ways I can make my life suck less. That's what you're writing notes about this morning. Admit it, okay? Look, but look, Jesus is talking to you. Jesus is talking to you. You know, some of you are saying like, why does my life stink so bad right now? I will tell you why. Manure. Manure. Your circumstances smell terrible. Your life is not going according to anybody's plans. And you're like, God surely must have abandoned me. I'm sure he must have done something wrong. And what do we see in this passage? Manure around the tree. See, what is God doing to this tree? He's being patient. He's being loving. He's moving into this person's life. He's being patient. He's putting manure around this person's life to show you this. The goal of your life is not independence from God. The goal of your life is not getting to a place where you don't, you're not needy anymore. I, I hate being needy. You hate being needy. You hate being in a place where you're like, I can't make this work. We all want to move out of that as quickly as possible. And God puts manure. Your life stinks. He puts stuff in you in circumstances so you can say, I repent. You're right. 
I need you. I don't need to get out of this. I don't need to get away from this. I don't need to get away from you. The goal of my life is not to get away from God and a place where I need Him. Do you see? Every week I ask you this question. Who are you in this story? Who are you? Are you the people telling the tragedy story to Jesus? Life's going pretty well. Tempted to move towards self-righteousness. Are you the fig tree? Tempted to move towards self-pity. Do you see that Jesus has an invitation for every person here? What this passage tells us is your life, whether there are good things coming down the pike or there are stinky things coming down the pike, everything in your life is to be received with repentance. To say, this stuff points me to my need for God. Tremendous need for God in my life. These good things, these good things could easily become a replacement for him where I worship myself and idolize my circumstances. Man, I need more of God. Which one are you? See, there's an urgency in this passage, isn't there? There's an urgency. I mean, Jesus sort of seems to say, as long as you're not dead yet, you still have time to repent. See, the people come to God. The people approach Jesus and they talk to him about atrocity stories. Jesus talks about a tragedy. You know, but what's the real tragedy inherent in this passage? Not repenting. Not turning to God. Not recognizing how much you fundamentally need him in the good times and in the bad times. That's the only tragedy. Look, I notice that one of three things happens most of the time to Christians. When, it, when we talk about repentance. First is this. We stop at insight. You stop at insight. See, we live in a very psychologized culture. There's a lot of analysis talk that's made its way into our common speech. And that's a good thing, right? It's a good thing for you to know yourself and under your, understand yourself and figure out why you do things. But it's not the same thing as repentance. Repentance doesn't look at your sin, look at the ways that you are jacking up your life, and pushing God away, and say, hmm, look at that. Okay, that's what I do. Repentance says, no. God, I need you. I need you in a fundamental way. I need you in a powerful way. I need you right here in this place. You know, another way that we we sort of mess up repentance is to presume tomorrow. To say, well, you know, I, I feel kind of convicted about this today. I want to sit on this. I want to think about it. Jesus says something kind of funny to us in this parable. He says, he says, look, you know, it's almost like he's saying, look, if you're not dead yet, there's time to repent. And most of us go, ha, ha, ha. You know, we don't think of death as like imminent for us. But what, what you need to hear of this is that clear-eyed perspective on your circumstances right now is a gift. You know, those days when you see the world as it really is, those days when you see your heart and your life as it truly is before God, that is not something to despise or presume. Those are a gift. Most of us walk around this life in a fog of self-concern most of the time. Right? Most of our days, most of our weeks, most of our months are spent with sort of like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm kind of thinking about what I'm having for dinner and, you know, how the Phillies are doing. See, clear-eyed thinking about yourself, your heart, your circumstances, how you stand before God, that is a tremendous, tremendous gift. 
don't presume that your heart will be in the same place tomorrow. We're people who harden our hearts so fast. You know, the third way I see that we, rec- we mess up repentance is this. We talk each other out of it. And Christians are champions of this. Right? And in the book of Job, I was telling you about here he is in the midst of suffering, and his buddies come around, some good Christian guys, and they tell him a bunch of garbage. See, in the midst of clear-eyed perspective on you and your problems and who God is, other Christians will be tempted to talk you out of repenting. You know why? Because if you're convicted, you say, this is wrong in my life, I need to change in this area, man, I need God. Other people are like, I don't want God in this area of my life, so shut up. Don't tell me about your conviction. I don't want to hear it. In fact, I'll do everything I can to talk you out of it. See, listen to the urgency of this message. Respond. Repent. Cling to Jesus. I'll close and I'll I'll, I'll hesitate to try another sports analogy. You know, I think linebackers are probably probably the most difficult position on a football field. Because a linebacker has to make a split-second decision in every play. Am I going to go for the run or the pass? What's happening? How, how's, what's the other team doing? i got to make a split-second decision. If a linebacker says, I'm going to hold back for a couple seconds and just see what's going on here, and then I'll decide what to do, what happens? Every time you lose yardage over and over, and they've lost the game. But they have to decide, hey, am I going to lean forward, wait forward, move forward? The rush is coming. The run's coming. I've got to move. Or is it the pass? I've got to pull back. See, in your life right now, in this place this morning, Jesus is telling us this. It is his kindness which leads us toward repentance. Jesus has exercised incredible mercy in your life. You have not gotten what you deserve. And yet, give it another year. Let's see what happens. God is not patient forever. And my call to you is to repent today, this moment, while you have insight on your life, while things measure right, where you see the world as it really is and your heart as it really is. Repent while you have the light in front of you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.